serverless tools have come a long way since the release of AWS Lambda in 2014. Serverless apps were originally architected around Lambda, with the functions-as-a-service tool being used to glue together many larger pieces of functionality and API services. Today, many of the common AWS services such as API Gateway and DynamoDB have functionality built in to be able to respond to events. These services can use Amazon EventBridge to connect to each other. In many cases, a developer does not need AWS Lambda to glue together services to build an event-driven serverless application. Jeremy Daly is the host of the Serverless Chats podcast, a show about patterns and strategies in serverless architecture. Jeremy joins the show to talk about modern serverless development and the new tools available in the AWS ecosystem. Jeremy Daly, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So you host a podcast called Serverless Chats, and I'd like to know, when did you start working with serverless tools? So it's been quite some time now. Actually, it was shortly after AWS Lambda went GA back in early 2015 is when the company I was at, I was at a small startup, and we started looking at it because we had had just before that a an incident where our system did not scale when we got mentioned on the Today Show. And so that was one of those things where we just started looking at how do we scale up, you know, how do we scale up our application without having to, you know, set up millions of servers and have that all running in the background and paying all that money. And at the time, Lambda Functions seemed like they were a potentially good fit for that. So that's when I first started to sort of take a look at them. Didn't put anything into production with serverless, though, probably until about middle of 2016, maybe a little later than that, once API Gateway was available and we were able to actually start doing some web front ends. And in the early days of Lambda, it was often used as this tool for glue code when did Lambda mature to something that was more integral to application development? You know, it depends. I, I think that what's interesting about the ecosystem that AWS has put into place is this idea of serverless being more than just Lambda functions. And I think a lot of people kind of get hung up on this idea of FAS or functions as a service being what is serverless. And, and it couldn't, couldn't be further from the truth. You know, things like S3 and SQS and DynamoDB and SNS and now EventBridge and all of these other tools that are serverless in and of themselves, you know, the, the, the tools that, that you can use without having to worry about capacity planning and without having to worry about managing those servers in the background. What Lambda does is it just gives you, as you said, that glue to kind of tie some of those things together. But we're even getting to a point now where we're sort of sort of maturing past the need for Lambda in many cases, right? So some of these tools like API Gateway, and now the new HTTP APIs that just came out, um, you know, they're, they're providing ways in which you can do direct integrations into other systems. So you can have data come in from an API Gateway and write that into an SQS queue or into a DynamoDB table and, and have that, you know, even and use VTL templates if you want to to manipulate that. You know, then if you have some business logic, something you need to do with that on the back end, you know, that's something you can do asynchronously and use a Lambda function to do something like that. But so, I mean, I, I would say, you know, Lambda functions started off as, like you said, sort of this glue code where you could kind of run some business logic here and there and maybe tie together some services. But the ecosystem itself, and, and especially AWS, is, is growing to a point where some of those connections are sort of built into the tools themselves and Lambda isn't even necessary in some cases. Could you explain that in more detail? So maybe give a concrete example about how you might have needed to use Lambda functions to glue together different AWS services before, but today it's easier to just have them integrate seamlessly. Sure. So like, let's think about maybe a webhook scenario. You could set up an API gateway right now that had a service integration into Kinesis Data Firehose. And essentially what that would do is it would allow you to take the data in from wherever, you know, whatever is emitting those events or whatever's hitting your, your webhook, take that data, use VTL, translate that into some format that goes into a Kinesis record. And then with Kinesis Data Firehose, you can actually process that data 
and spit it into S3 buckets and automatically prefix it. So you can say, you know, these are all the events from 2020-03-19 or whatever. And it does it by, by date and by hour, splits those all up. And then you can write Athena queries. You can use Athena, which is another serverless service that's similar to like Google BigQuery, where you can just point that to those S3 buckets and you can actually query that data as if it was in, you know, sort of a MySQL table or something like that. And so that entire process of of doing something just to get a, you know, analytics or to to process some data off of webhooks, you can do that now without using Lambda at all. Now Lambda comes in really handy for for a bunch of things that you can do within that process if you wanted to. So let's say that you wanted to maybe transform the data that was coming in from the webhooks, maybe do some verification, things like that. You connect it through the Kinesis Data Firehose, and then you can actually have a Lambda function that does that transform step for you that's, you know, after the data has been captured, it will transform that and then put that into, into S3 for you. And then once you have S3 and the data sort of the way you want in S3, you query that with Athena. And now Athena even has a way that you can run queries. And when those queries are finished, those can actually trigger Lambda functions for you to do something else with. So it's really it's it's really about thinking about how you can use all the different tools that are available to you as opposed to just sort of focusing on what code can I write myself. And the big point here, and this is something that, you know, some of the DAs at, at AWS talk about quite often is the biggest weakness with any serverless application is the code that you write. I mean, for the most part, you can trust the cloud to do the retries and to do things like throttling and to do some of these other things so that you don't lose events. But as soon as you write code that starts touching those events and starts trying to manipulate data and call other systems, that's when you can start introducing bugs. So the more that you can or the more you can avoid writing code and use the built-in systems or the built-in tools that are there for you, you know, that's I think the ultimate goal of where we want to go with serverless. And if we compare the typical greenfield application path that people might have taken 10 years ago, standing up a EC2 instance with your first monolith and you know standing up a database server somewhere else, or, or maybe there, I'm not sure if there are managed database services 10 years ago, but how does that compare to today? So if I have my monolithic Node.js application that I'm standing up as a Greenfield application today. Is there a standard serverless stack or uh, deployment medium that, you know, should you still use EC2? Should you use Fargate? Should you really just try to, you know, use Lambda functions together with other various services? What's the Greenfield application stack? Yeah, so that's a, a really good question because I think that is something that definitely trips people up when they start thinking about serverless. And that also goes back to this idea of thinking that Lambda functions you know, or FAST is what serverless is because, again, like I said, it's, a, it's the ecosystem around it. So traditionally, when you were setting up applications... You know, you would you would have to go through that process of saying, okay, we're going to build it on Node, or we're going to build it on PHP, or we're going to write Java, or whatever we're going to do, and then someone would have to set those servers up for you. Now, if you were a small team, that was one of the biggest pains is that you would spend a lot of time just trying to figure out what does my infrastructure look like, right? What do I need for a database? You know, what do I need for an application server and things like that? What do I need for maybe a messaging server if I am going to build some things distributed? You know, what other services might I use? And the problem with that is always really easy to set up that initial version. But then as soon as it starts to scale, that becomes incredibly difficult, right? Now you're, you're starting to load balance things and you have to start sharding databases and it gets really, really complex. So if you're building a greenfield application in 2020, you need to think about, one, building it in the cloud, because especially if you're a startup or even you're a good-sized business, just the idea of trying to use VMs and configure that and have all that maintenance that you need to do when you, you take that old sort of traditional approach, that's just a huge headache. That's something that is completely not worth your time and it's just going to waste your developer's time. So what you want to do is you want to think about how you build sort of what we are calling modern applications, right, or cloud-native applications, and in some cases, containers can fit in there. But really, the first thing that I always do, at least for me, this is the advice that I give, is to say, can you build it serverless? If you say, no, I can't, then rethink it and ask yourself again and rethink the way you would build the application. And then if you really can't, then start thinking about maybe going down the Fargate route or something like that. But 
in almost all cases, with the tools available today, you could absolutely avoid using EC2. I have tons of applications that are running right now. They're running 100% serverless except for using like Elasticsearch on the back end for a few things because there really is no good serverless search utility right now. But to go back to your question about sort of the standard stack, I mean, there are a bunch of really great tools. So Serverless Framework is a framework that allows you to very easily sort of configure your Lambda functions, specify the resources you need, do all your mappings so that you can say, okay, when this endpoint is hit, I want it to trigger this Lambda function. You know, you can set up all of your resources all within a simple serverless.yaml file. But then there's CloudFormation and there's a subset of CloudFormation called SAM, which is the serverless application model that is produced by the teams at AWS. And that's very similar to the serverless framework. You can configure all your resources in there, configure your Lambda functions, things like that. And then it's a simple deploy, you know, SLS deploy or serverless deploy or SAM deploy. And it just pushes all that stuff up into the cloud. It's all infrastructure as code. It's all repeatable. You can create new environments. And again, because the runtimes, if, you, if you're really kind of hung up on the fast aspect of this, the runtimes available on AWS right now, there's Node, there's Python, there's Go, there's Rust, there's Java. I mean, basically any language you want to write it in. And even if you can't, even if there's not an existing language support for it, you can do custom runtimes. So really, there is little reason, unless you have to build a stateful application, that you wouldn't just go serverless out of the box. At least that's that's how I feel about it. And can you speak a little bit more about how serverless has changed the product direction of AWS? You're speaking to it a little bit by just talking about how these services have become more integrated in a way that doesn't even necessitate glue code. But maybe you could speak to what has come out in recent years and what it might say about the future product direction of AWS. So that's a really interesting question because two years ago, when I was at reInvent 2018, it was all about serverless. It was all, you know, the massive investments in serverless. This is where everything was going. And then at reInvent 2019, it was very much so, here's how we're going to support more with containers. And here's how we're going to allow you to run Kubernetes or Kubernetes pods on top of, you know, Fargate and some of these other things, which is sort of a serverless container system that they have. So if you asked me two years ago, I would say, yeah, I think AWS is moving 100% to the serverless sort of wave. But I think that the market has sort of adopted containers as sort of the main thing you hear about all the time, Kubernetes, Kubernetes, everybody's doing Kubernetes, all these big companies are building Kubernetes clusters. The idea of where I think AWS is going right now from an enterprise standpoint, and again, they make their money off of enterprise customers. So they're going down that direction, I think, of trying to support sort of this more general idea or more accepted idea of cloud native, which has sort of become synonymous with containers. But they are still building tools that serve this sort of serverless piece of it. So one of the things to think about between, you know, sort of what fast is versus what everything else is, is fast is very much so just the runtime, right? Just the ability to run code, whatever that is, business logic, glue code, whatever you want to call it. But it's the database, it's the messaging system, it's the queuing system, it's the streaming tools, it's all of those other tools in that ecosystem that add on to that that business logic that makes it really, really powerful. And so if you look at something like Kubernetes or containers, what people are building on containers, unless they're building out, you know, very custom sort of implementations of these things, you know, they're not building out their databases on containers. They're not building out some of these other things on containers. They're, they're mostly focusing on the business logic, right? And again, there's some great use cases for it when it comes to machine learning and some of these other things, even just serving up HTML or serving up, you know, web pages or APIs. But all of the stuff around that, right, which really makes the application rich. So the, you know, the DynamoDBs, the, the NoSQL databases, or or even, you know, large RDS clusters for relational databases and things like that, or EventBridge to do this, you know, really scalable mass, uh, you know, this message bus that EventBridge does for you. Those are the tools that are all peripheral to that. So even people who are building on AWS and, and using containers and going down that route, they are still taking advantage of these other services, these other peripheral what I would call serverless services that are in that ecosystem. So I think AWS has changed their sort of, I don't want to say they changed the direction, but they certainly have changed their marketing a bit to be very much so focused on saying, all right, you want to do Kubernetes? Great, we can do Kubernetes, we can do Kubernetes. But behind the scenes, they're working very hard on building all these other tools that essentially is going to make something like Kubernetes 
completely, not only say obsolete, but something you don't have to worry about. And I think for the majority of developers who are doing that or are building things, they don't want to be tied down by, you know, by having to manage some infrastructure. And if you've got a big company and some other somebody else is managing that for you, that's one thing. But especially for small, you know, for small startups or even, you know, mid-sized companies that want to move fast and want to, you know, build things quickly, certainly avoiding that container trap. I don't know if you would call it that. I mean, maybe I would call it that. But avoiding having to manage that piece of it and being able to focus on, you know, these these small components that scale almost infinitely and take advantage of that whole ecosystem. I think that's where AWS is kind of heading in the background while still from a front end standpoint, accepting the fact that Kubernetes is sort of the talk of the town. And so they'll continue to do that while building out these back end components. But between the things that have sort of just been launched over the last couple of years, you know, EventBridge is the big one. I mean, for me, that changes the way you do inter-service communication. It, it is a massive messaging bus that allows you to do routing and all kinds, you know, multiple subscribers. It's a pub-sub type system, you know, similar to like a Kafka or something like that, but fully managed and allows you to sort of glue all kinds of things together with filters and, and messages and everything's decoupled. You know, there's been a significant amount of investment in things like the API gateway. So now you've got the new HTTP APIs that are less than a third of the cost of what your original API gateway service was or the REST APIs also dramatically reduced the latency of those things. You've got WebSockets. You've got you know the event schema registry. I mean, there's just so many cool things that have come out that are completely managed for you. And once they're set up and once they're configured, you don't have to go in and install updates. You don't have to worry about something breaking and then having to go and replace a drive somewhere or reboot a server or set up scaling groups or any of that stuff. It's just taken care of for you. So I think that's where AWS is quietly moving in the background, even if they're, you know, more publicly talking about supporting things like containers. But I think they're in full agreement that eventually they want that to go away and they want serverless to be the way. It has become an amazing competition of narratives here where you have the one narrative of we should be avoiding lock-in and Kubernetes is our remedy to this that is, you know, to some extent true, to some extent a hangover of the Microsoft days, and to some extent Google's kind of virtuous blathering about, you know, something that may be non-issue compared to the convenience that you would get from the lock-in of AWS with the potential threat that AWS somehow turns into Oracle in the future and locks you in and starts raising prices. And and so it's, it's anyone's guess as to which of these narratives should be more believed. And so you see these interesting compromises in how people are navigating the landscape. Some people are saying, yeah, I'm going to have a Kubernetes cluster in each cloud provider, or I'm going to try to replicate my infrastructure in each cloud provider. Actually, I don't think anybody's doing that. But it, it is this you know, this this weighing of pros and cons of convenience versus... But the, the other thing is like, you know, even if you set up a Kubernetes cluster, you set, you use like a Google, like a Google Kubernetes service, you're still locked in, I think, even just to the extent that you've, you happen to have set up infrastructure on a cloud provider, and it takes a lot of effort to migrate off of a cloud provider, you're kind of locked in there. And so... On the other hand, you know, going whole hog into basically running on the AWS operating system of services is a very scary proposition for some people, or it's a new exciting paradigm shift. It just seems hard to weigh these two futures. And I think what I'm seeing, at least when I talk to people who are running large enterprises, is basically we're going to hedge our bets for as long as we can, as practically as we can which often results in in a feeling that they're doing something wrong but you know today there's just no there's there's really nobody who can say what the quote unquote best practice is around how aggressively you should adopt this stuff 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the problem with vendor lock-in or that vendor lock-in argument, especially when it comes to something like Kubernetes, like, so if you set up a Kubernetes cluster on AWS, and then you set one up in Google Cloud, and then you build an application that runs on Knative or whatever, and you have your containers all set up, and you can say, well, I can just deploy these containers to AWS, and then I can also deploy the same containers to Google Cloud. And I think the multi-cloud parity, you know, sort of like having parity between two applications on multiple clouds. I don't know how how much people are doing that, but let's say that that was the ultimate goal. So now I can run an application on, on Google Cloud and I can run it on AWS and maybe it's, it's portable in the sense that I don't have to change too much other than maybe a few configurations. But what is that application doing? Where's it getting its data from, right? What is it using for its message queues, right? So if you're building in the cloud today, it is... It is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea, in my opinion, to choose the lowest common denominator. And by that, I mean, if you say, well, we want to use MySQL, and that's what we want to back our database, we want MySQL whatever, to, back our, to be our backing database. If you're in AWS, are you going to spin up a bunch of EC2 instances and install MySQL yourself and try to manage that cluster with some sort of load balancer or something like that? Or are you just going to use RDS, right? Which is their you know relational database service. You're going to use RDS. And so now if you go over to if you go over to Google Cloud, you know, are you going to install MySQL on a bunch of VMs there and manage that yourself? Or are you going to use Cloud SQL? Right. So you're going to already lock yourself into one of the products on one of those providers because it would just be crazy not to. And if you're going to use something like MySQL, you know, why not use, why not take some of your application and put some of it in DynamoDB so that you have the scale and the operational scalability so you don't have to worry about managing all those databases? Why not use Firestore or Firebase on the Google side because it'll just be a smarter tool to use that would make it easier to build your application, more scalable, less management on the back end. And as soon as you start making those decisions, you're already locked in, right? So if you think it's, you know, if you want the convenience of being able to move your 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 application code that to me is the is the easiest thing to do and what does that take i mean even you know, huge application let's say you had to do some refactoring to move it from lambda functions to azure functions you know so maybe that takes a couple of months to do that how much time do you lose trying to build something out that is agnostic to these different clouds and you know what what do you lose in capabilities what do you lose in scalability how much do you lose in terms of the number of people People you have to set aside to be able to manage these clusters because you're not taking advantage of these cloud native services. So I think that the second you you choose anything outside of running just application code, any anytime you, you you pick any service on the provider that does that, and that might be EKS by the way, right? Like EKS is the is the the Kubernetes service that AWS has. You choose that, and all of a sudden now setting up another Kubernetes cluster in another cloud is going to be different, right? So now there's a, something else you have to learn, something different you have to do. It's not just grab this code and, and upload it to a different server. It's a lot more complicated than that. And so I get your point, and I can see why enterprises say, well, I don't want to go all in on AWS because what happens if they you know, raise the prices or do something like that? I mean, that, that very well could be true, but I think if you're going to spend the time trying to be agnostic, what you really should be spending the time is, is using the tools in each cloud provider, build an application that runs on that application or on that cloud provider using the best tools that they have available and do the same thing on other ones. And, and maybe they're not 100% portable, but a lot of the business logic would be. That's not going to change. Some of the interfaces into it and some of the ways that you deploy these things might be a little bit different. But again, you're going to use, you know, you're going to use step functions in AWS. You're going to use logic apps in Azure. And that's the kind of decisions that I think you're going to have to make if you really want to be multi-cloud. But this idea to me of, of trying to just be agnostic just seems like a huge investment. And not only is it probably never going to pay off for you, but it's going to slow you down. And, you know, and wh whether you have a team of 100 or 1000, there could be a team of five people that could build a product and get it up and running in a few months on AWS while you're still spending months and months trying to figure out how to how to make this work across all these different major providers. And what are you hearing when you talk to large enterprises? How open are they to the idea of starting to expand into 
more and more serverless services? I mean, I think it depends on who you talk to, right? I mean, enterprises everywhere are starting to adopt serverless at least as a peripheral sort of component, right? And so one of the really, really interesting use cases for serverless, which is something that, you know, that I guess it only applies to companies who have very large infrastructure or very large cloud deployments as it is now, is that you can use serverless to react or Lambda functions to react to events from your EC2 instances. So Let's say you get an alarm, a CloudWatch alarm that goes off that says, you know, a particular server has spiked to, you know, 90% CPU or something like that. You could have a Lambda function that responds to that and either runs some diagnostic scripts or reboots the, you know, reboots that EC2 instance or spins up another instance and then reboots that instance. I mean, there's all kinds of things. There's the use cases of development machines that there's a schedule, there's a CloudWatch schedule that runs, or CloudWatch, uh, yeah, CloudWatch schedule, or a rule that triggers every night at 7 p.m. or whatever it is that it shuts down a whole fleet of development servers, and then at 7 o'clock in the morning, it spins them all back up so that when the developers are working that they have this environment, but they're not going to pay for it when it's not running. You know, there's all kinds of things like that. You know, CloudTrail and AWS is essentially the stream of information of what's happening in your infrastructure. So it doesn't matter what services you're using. They don't have to be serverless ones. But as different things happen in the infrastructure, security things, people log in, people change permissions, those kind of things, all of that information gets sent to CloudTrail. And you can read off of that stream and say, I want to do something with it. So the idea of integrating serverless into this sort of DevOps type role is a very, very popular thing that I see a lot of enterprises doing because it doesn't touch their main application, right? It, this is peripheral to it and we, they don't have to worry. So they might be running Kubernetes or they might be running EC2 or they, they're doing something like that, but, but they can run these jobs and these scripts and, and these other things that they might be running before on something like a Jenkins or, or whatever. They can now do all this stuff on the outside without having to worry about needing to run those servers and having the benefit of it being very event-driven, which is, you know, is something that serverless is, is one of the key components of what we consider serverless. You talked about EventBridge in some detail earlier. Can, can you explain in more detail what EventBridge is and how it changes serverless architecture? Yeah. So one of the things that you, you need to think about when you're building serverless applications is we start splitting our applications up into very, very small chunks. So if you go and you think about microservice architecture, usually what you would do is you'd build a bunch of different services that would be separate, that'd be distributed. And you might have a billing service and you might have a order service and maybe you have an inventory service and a mailer or an alerting service, something like that. And traditionally, the way that you'd build those is you would build those, you know, as maybe separate, you might have a cluster of EC2 instances or a set of containers that are running just that particular application. They have their own data store. And the typical way that you would communicate with those is you would send messages back and forth. Sometimes there would be API calls, you know, synchronous API calls, but other times, and, and usually you would use some sort of a messaging bus. So you essentially would say, okay, an order was just placed so I'm going to send out a message onto this message bus that says, hey, an order was placed. Here's some information about the order. Then any service in your, in your architecture that was interested in that particular event could listen for that type of event and then consume it. So now maybe your alerting service says, oh, a new order was placed. Great. Now I want to go ahead and send an alert to you know, sales or I want to send a message to the, the customer and let them know that their, their order was received. So that's typically how you would communicate between microservices. When you move to serverless, now you start breaking these microservices down even smaller, right? So now you're using individual functions. So you might have a send email, send text message, process alert. Those might be three separate functions that live in your, in your alerting microservice. So it's not just composing those functions together like you, you would in the past because, you know, where they all ran on the same stack or on the same machine. These are all technically running as separate individual containers that do that particular job. So the ability for you to, to coordinate that stuff and say, okay, so a new alert came in and now uh, I need to send an email, you can wire all of that stuff together with messaging buses. 
or a message bus. And the tool that, that AWS has come out with is an extension of their CloudWatch events, but it's now called EventBridge. It's become a lot more powerful. It allows you to do a lot more integrations with third parties. And also you can sort of get rid of webhooks with certain with certain companies. But let me go back and just sort of explain how that works. So let's say I get an order that comes in, someone places an order on the site, it hits the order service and a new order gets created. So what you do is you basically can emit an event or send an event to EventBridge and say, okay, this order, you know, and you choose your bus, right? Maybe you have a main bus, you might have other buses, but you send a message to that bus and you say, this order has been placed and here's some of those details. And then EventBridge allows you to connect other Lambda functions, it allows you to send things to step functions, it allows you to send them to Kinesis Data Firehose, it allows you to, to trigger all kinds of other downstream services and multiple ones, right? So it's PubSub, you can have multiple subscribers to this. And so every time a new order is placed and that event is put on the bus, you may have 10 different services that are interested in that. You might have a service that writes something to Salesforce or to Marketo or, or some other you know sales system. You might have a tool that sends out the email, you might have a tool that goes and orders more inventory if it if it if it dips below a certain amount. So you can build all those things and they're all completely independent and decoupled. And by decoupled I mean that none of those services have to know what any other service is doing, right? So as long as one of those services emits an event that says this has happened, those other services that are interested in that type of event can listen for it, but you can go ahead and add 30 more services that are listening to that event and that original service that was producing that event doesn't need to know that those exist. All it needs to know is that it needs to be able to do its job. And so the ability to scale with EventBridge is is pretty crazy because it's like you can send just, I, I don't even know what the throughput is on it, but it's like billions of messages a day this thing is handling. I mean, it's crazy. And that's everything from the messages that you send to do the inter, you know, inter-service communication. You can, it's all those cloud trail events that we talked about, you know, that a EC2 server or an alarm went off or something like that. All of that is built in. And the other thing that EventBridge adds, which is really cool, is integrations with third-party services. So we talked earlier about webhooks and that webhook use case. Well, setting up a webhook is kind of a pain. Even if you, you know, go through that whole process, you still have to configure it, you still have to worry about scaling and some of these other things, make sure that it can handle all that data. What EventBridge does is for a few partners, I think there's maybe 20 partners now, something like PagerDuty and a, and a couple of other ones, what they allow you to do is communicate through events. So when something happens in PagerDuty on your account, trying to hit an endpoint for you to do that webhook, instead of doing that, it actually will just send a message to an event bus in your AWS account. So now you can subscribe Lambda functions or step functions or you know any of the other services. I think it integrates with 20 services now. Any of those other services so that now let's say you know there's a, an alarm goes off in PagerDuty or there's a change in schedule or whatever some of those events might be. Now that gets posted to, to EventBridge and you don't have to worry about maintaining that, that webhook endpoint. You don't have to worry about trying to make sure that data gets captured or, or if it fails, trying to do retries. All of that is handled by EventBridge for you, and then you just build in, you just add your subscriptions or your rules that route that to those different services. So it's a really, really powerful system that, you know, makes it what I'm hoping, and I think this is what AWS is hoping too, is that as more people start using this partner channel or these partner events, then then you get to the point where all of that communication happens through EventBridge, right? So anytime I want to say, or I want to process a credit card with Stripe, for example, maybe that's something I can submit an event to EventBridge and then Stripe will pick that up and then send a message back to me letting me know that the card was processed or, or something like that. And so that could get really, really exciting because that eliminates a lot of extra infrastructure and a lot of headache from many teams that are dealing with all these different services when you no longer have to set up those webhooks and, and be responsible for those. So it, it is something where it just makes it a lot easier to do the communication. It standardizes it. It allows you to send it across different accounts. 
So if you have multiple accounts, you can send messages between different accounts. And it's just it's just a complete sort of change to the way, you know, that I think we were building serverless applications before where we were doing some pub sub, but we were often using things like SNS, which is fine, but you can't do step functions and some of these other things you can't kick off. So I probably rambled on for quite a bit there, but you can probably tell I'm, I'm excited about it because I, I do. I, I've started using it now and I, I don't know how I did things without it, basically. And so the difference in how EventBridge functions versus SNS or SQS or Kinesis, the other queuing services on AWS, can you explain what the difference is in more detail? Yeah, so Kinesis is a streaming service. So what, what's really great about Kinesis is when you add messages to Kinesis or to a Kinesis stream, it actually saves those messages for a period of time. I think 24 hours might be the default, uh, but I think you can go up to seven days. But essentially what it does is it stores those messages and it stores them in order. So I can have multiple consumers that can read off of that Kinesis stream and I can go back in time up to however, you know, however far back I've stored, I can go back and time and reread events that have already been read maybe by another consumer. That's really powerful. That's a, a super helpful use case for something like that is when you need to have massive throughput and you need to be able to maintain ordering, something like maybe clickstream data. But if you wanted to use it as a message bus, the problem is, is that you can't filter messages from EventBridge. So essentially, every single message that goes on to that stream has to get read by the consumer. And the consumer would then have to decide whether or not they want to keep the message or not. So for pub sub type things, right, where you would want to publish a message and you would want multiple consumers to consume that, something like Kinesis would not be a great choice for that because, especially if every consumer wasn't interested in pretty much every single message. But lots of great use cases for that, especially when you want to maintain strict ordering and you have very, very high throughput. SQS is the simple queue service. And so simple queue service essentially is just a regular queue. So once a message is removed from the queue, it's gone. So you can have really only one consumer per SQS queue. And what that does is that it checks it down, you know, downloads the messages, does something with them, and then tells the queue to remove them. But you can only use the message essentially once. But very, very lightweight tons of throughput, you know, it's like the the failure rate on it is very, 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 very low. So it's something where if you do just want to make sure you capture an event and have that message durability, SQS is a really great choice because it is so lightweight. But you are a little bit limited on how many, you know, you can, like I said, you can only have one consumer that can process it. There is something called FIFO queues with SQS, which is first in, first out. And those allow you to maintain ordering as well. The problem with that is similar to what you have with Kinesis is Kinesis, if you have really, really high throughput, you have to break it up into what are called shards. You basically have to shard it. And then you would have multiple consumers that can, can read off those different shards. Same thing with FIFO queues for SQS is you would have to set up different message group IDs that allow you to have different consumers for those different groups or they're kind of like shards. But it's certainly something where you can do it and, it and it works really well. It's just you, again, you get limited on throughput if you don't shard the data enough. So again, SQS is great if you have a single consumer. Where EventBridge and SNS come in, and I'll talk about SNS for a second. So SNS is the simple notification service. That was their original pub-sub service. Also a very, very cool service. You can essentially publish a message and that will have, you know, distribute it to however, however many subscriptions it has. SNS is really great for, and we use it before to do things like to trigger Lambda functions, for example. But SNS is really, really, really powerful for very, very high throughput type pub sub jobs. So your subscribers can be SMS phone numbers. They can be email addresses. They can be mobile, you know, like an APN for like Apple uh, push notification, things like that. So we're talking about very, very, like a ton of subscribers with very, very high throughput. Can you use it to trigger a Lambda function? Yeah, you can. Can you use it to trigger an HTTP endpoint? Yes, you can. But the but the main thing that you would use SNS for now that EventBridge exists is for those very, very high throughput use cases where you need to send, you know, I don't know, 100,000 push notifications or, or something like that. But you can use it. You could use it as that sort of traditional pub sub. So one message goes out, multiple consumers can consume it. But where EventBridge comes in is EventBridge really is built to be that sort of enterprise messaging bus, right? So 
There's a bunch of retries built into the system. So if it if you send a message to EventBridge, as soon as it gets that message, then you're pretty much guaranteed almost to have that delivered to whatever service you've got wired to it or whatever rule you have to route it to the downstream service or the subscribers. And so if you're sending it to like Lambda Functions, for example, the Lambda Functions service only has to accept that job and then all of the retries are built in there. But, but EventBridge will actually retry for up to 24 hours for all these different services and not lose, you know, and not lose your message. So, so really just, I guess, to summarize it all, you know, Kinesis is great for, for high throughput streaming where you need to maintain order, but you still have to deal with shards, but it's not great if you have multiple consumers that only need certain messages. SQS is for sort of a single consumer, very high throughput and, you know, very lightweight. So great for just message durability and things like that. SNS, great for high throughput pub subtype jobs, you know, again, the the emails or the push notifications. And then EventBridge is really for that solid enterprise event bus pub sub type stuff. And now that we've covered EventBridge in some detail, another newer application in the serverless family of tools is AWS Step Functions, which is a tool for building these serverless applications with a visual workflow. Can you explain how Step Functions are used? Yeah, so step functions have actually been around for quite some time. What they released recently was last year or two years ago, well, 2018, I believe, were what they call express workflows. So step functions, express workflows. So step functions are state machines. So if you're familiar with a, with a state machine, essentially what it is, it's just, just a tool that does or allows you to do orchestration so that you can, you can have multiple components do some sort of job and then based on the results of those jobs, you know, control that workflow, right? So the ordering workflow is the perfect thing where you say, all right, an order comes in, a new order comes in. So the first thing we need to do is make sure that we have the inventory to process the order, right? Or first thing we have to do is submit the order itself and capture the data. Then once we do that, we have to make sure that the inventory is available and we go, we have to, you know, subtract the, the number from the inventory. Then we have to go and, and make sure we put a shipping request in for it. And then we have to send an alert to the user. And then we have to, you know, once it goes out, we have to send the, a tracking number to the user, something like that. So if any one of those steps breaks down in the order, that's a, sort of a bad experience, right? We don't want the user to, to say, hey, I, we got your order, but then the inventory or the shipping stuff never actually happened. So what state machines do, and, and this is something you do with step functions, is essentially you can say, all right, I want to go ahead and process the order. And so you process the order, you, you, you run that as a task in your state machine, and then that comes back and says, okay, that's, that's done. And once that's done, then you move to the next stage and and you then run another task and you say, okay, now I'm going to deduct my inventory or we're going to check the inventory, make sure that that's there. That comes back and says that that's good to go. Then you go on and you try to do the shipping. And now let's say the shipping comes back and says, oh, there was a problem with the shipping. We couldn't do it right now. The step function can build in all kinds of retries and it can retry that same job or that same task multiple times. And let's say that we say, okay, we want to wait five minutes between every try to, to process the shipping. If it fails 10 times or three times or whatever, then we basically have to roll back the entire application. So you can handle all of that logic and all of that coordination of those different steps. You can handle that with, with step functions, right? Which makes it a very, very smart choice if you have a workflow that is complex and all of the steps have to complete. And you can do things like parallel executions, so you can use it for doing things like fan outs and these other complex patterns. But really, the, the main thing to understand is the ability for you to have a lot of control over how all of these different steps process and what the retries and all the guarantees and things like that. The reason why that is super important is, you know, because if you just try to use more of a choreography approach, and I'm a big fan of choreography approaches to distributed systems or to microservices for very loosely coupled things where it's like, if for some reason the, you know, the marketing update service didn't trigger right away and we had to manage retries in there, like that's that's not as big of a deal as if we weren't able to process somebody's credit card and then we still ended up shipping them something, right? Like that would be bad. So if you have those very strict workflows, using something like step functions just gives you all that extra control and it just, you know, so it's just sort of a smarter way to do it. The step functions, the original step functions are long running and you can run them for a year, right? So you can do all kinds of cool things where you can even have a system that when it's eventually done its job, 
it can ping the step function and say, okay, I'm done this step, and that can kick off and do something else. And again, that can be a year. It can run for quite some time. The new ones that they launched you know, a year or so ago were the express workflows, and those are the ones that need to run within five minutes. So they're for a very quick sort of thing. So the order process could be something that would fit into that because, again, most likely that whole order process would run very quickly. But those are for, again, very high throughput state transitions because regular step functions are a little bit pricey when you have to, you know, it's something like 2.5 cents per 1,000 state transitions or something like that. Whereas the express workflows are very, very inexpensive and they can they can run very, very quickly. But overall, they're state machines and they allow you to build these complex workflows and there is the visual piece of it. So it's not a visual builder, it's a visual sort of renderer, I guess, is the, is it shows you, you build it all out in JSON and it will show you how it works. It gives you this visual representation, which is, uh, is, is very nice to see. So it's very, very helpful. But typically the workflow, or I should say the, the way that step functions work is that you would, you would build these things out and the task would generate really execute using Lambda functions because that's sort of the, that's where you can run that business logic to, you know, to handle whatever that service is you needed to do. There was this announcement, I think this was a few years ago, or maybe less than two years ago, but about Firecracker, which is a underlying runtime for serverless applications. I think it's for functions as a service. Do you have any knowledge of how Firecracker has changed the underlying runtime, I guess, at least for, for functions as a service? Yeah, so so Firecracker isn't actually a runtime. It's actually the container. It's the virtualization layer itself. It's the way that you can run these very, very lightweight containers in order to serve up functions as a service, right? So, you know, if you're familiar with like hypervisor and those sort of things where with VMs, it's sort of a heavy process uh, to start up a new VM on a large machine. So you, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of minutes to, to spin something like that up. What Firecracker did is it basically just gets those containers closer and closer and closer to the bare metal of the machines that they run on and allow you to spin up these containers that are very, very secure. They're lightweight, but they can spin up these containers very, very, very fast. And that's what they've moved to running their Lambda functions in. So essentially, Lambda functions themselves are containers. You just, they're, I guess it's a, uh, you know, transparent to you that that's what's actually happening, but they do spin up a container that is running, you know, a Linux server, and they run that on top of Firecracker, and that's that virtualization layer. And so that can be done very, very quickly. And what they're also doing is moving things like Fargate to run on those as well. So it's just the ability for you to to run these services, run them very quickly, and get them loaded very quickly, which is the is the big thing, but still have all that isolation and still have all that security. That's what Firecracker is about. So that was sort of one of those big announcements that they made where people were like, oh, well, yeah, okay, what does it matter to me? Because it really doesn't matter to most people. It just means that you're able to run Lambda functions much faster behind the scenes. But what it does is it actually spins up the container, and then within that container is whether or not it's is the runtime that's that it is installed, whether it's you know Java or, or Node or, or Python or something like that. I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about podcasting. So sure. since you run serverless chats... Just love to know about your experience in the medium and what you like and whether you're optimistic about the future of software podcasting. Yeah, well, so I had never done podcasting before. I have a newsletter that I do on serverless called Off by None that I've been doing. I think I'm on issue 82 or something like that of that of it now. So it comes out every single week and it's essentially just a wrap up of everything that that has happened during the week in serverless. I focus a lot on AWS, but I try to pick some stories out from other clouds as well. But every week I put, you know, 40 or 50 links with descriptions. It's a it's a it's a long process to do this. But so I was doing that and I kept on seeing all of these really interesting stories that people were writing, stories of them implementing serverless and stories of them or problems they were having with with serverless or confusion around, you know, what are best practices or what are leading practices and the constant, you know, containers versus serverless arguments and some of these other things and people, you know, coming up with a million different definitions of what serverless was and 
I was going to conferences and I was, uh, you know, having chats with people that I wasn't recording and they were just really interesting to me. I, I thought to myself, you know, a year ago when I was having these conversations, I was like, oh, you know, I would have loved to have heard this a year ago. Like somebody else have this conversation, people who were further along in their journey. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try a podcast. And so ton of work to get set up, more work than I, I thought I was going to be. But once I started, once I started doing that and, and having these conversations with people, I mean, it's just been amazing, right? And I, I, I mean, I love chatting, I, as you can probably tell. I love talking about serverless. And so finding other people that are as excited as I am and bring new perspectives and different ideas is just super fascinating. And it, I always learn something new. Every time I have a new guest, I always make a new friend. And then I bump into him at a conference and we can have another conversation. I think I've heard a lot of feedback of people who say that sharing these conversations with them, you know, not only are entertaining, and I try to make my podcast, you know, a little bit entertaining at least, but also very educational and these things where people can go back to over and over and over again. And, and I mean, I had a, I, I know you actually had a, an interview with uh, Rick Houlihan from AWS. I recorded an interview with Rick Houlihan, I think shortly after you did. It ended up being two episodes long and I go back and listen to it myself just trying to catch all of the nuances and all the little details that that are in that episode. And I mean, it's just it's great. And, and I think that this is a medium where people can consume it when they're in the car, when they're sitting on the train, you know, when they're, you know, when they're out for a walk or for a jog or something like that. When they're like in that. quarantine. When they're in quarantine, exactly, right? But I think it's, I think it's a really cool medium because I can't sit and watch videos, you know, not on software stuff, like not for more than a few minutes, like more than five minutes or so. If you don't get to the point, like I kind of lose it. But I love listening to shows like yours and, and some of the other shows that are out there where it's just... You can listen to somebody get a you know get a bunch of knowledge just kind of downloaded into your head, and you can be doing something else while that's happening. Like I mean, when I mow my lawn or doing yard work or going for a run or any of those things, I almost always have a podcast on. So I know for me it's super interesting. I don't think I'm in the minority here. I think there are a lot of people who love you know just love podcasts and love the idea of being able to get information like that that they don't have to stare at documentation that's probably poorly written and try to figure it out themselves or read 800 blogs posts or, you know, or have to watch videos for it. Like this is just this, I always liken it to the scene from the matrix where, you know, Neo wakes up and says, I know Kung Fu. Like it's just downloading information into your brain, you know, that's not a super active, <laughs> it's not as active as having to read or watch a video or something like that. So anyways, I think there's a future for it. And I mean, I know there's more podcasts coming out. I hope more people come out with podcasts. I would love to listen to more things. And I mean, I'm going strong now. I just finished episode number 41. So I've been doing this for almost a year now and I hope to keep going it. I don't know how you do one every day or whatever it is that you that you do, but I'm trying to, you know, trying to do my part and spread, you know, spread the the good word of serverless as well as hopefully entertain people and, you know, give them another way to give them another way to learn. One thing I would say is it's been remarkable to me how little my life has changed under quarantine because I just spend probably too much time producing podcasts that's like been my big realization of this whole event is like this is actually not a probably a healthy way to live just like the fact that i have been i am under quarantine my life is under quarantine because i'm podcasting too much i think there's going to be a dramatic shift in my own life after this <laughs> if, if this thing ever ends do you think our podcast listener habits changing with the virus i mean this thing is like consuming all of people's spare brain bandwidth. I don't, I'm not sure people even want to hear about software topics. Yeah, well, I can tell you I'm getting tired of hearing about virus topics. I mean, I check <laughs> in on the late, you know, so anything that can distract you from from some of these things. I mean, obviously, this is this is a really weird time we're living in right now. Yeah. And, and like you said, I, I, I work from home anyways, but now I've got my kids home because they're out of school for however long. I don't know. My wife's a teacher, so she's home. So they're upstairs watching a movie right now while I'm trying to get work done here and, and have this conversation with you. So things have certainly changed. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I think, you know, there's this weird transition period, I think probably for the next week where people are going to try to figure out, you know, how to relive their lives. I mean, I, not much has changed for me either because I've been working from home. I really haven't stopped much other than to, you know, check the news every once in a while. But I, I don't know. I mean, again, once everything kicks back up, maybe there'll just be a backlog of episodes that people are going to need to listen to on their way to work. Let's hope so. Well, Jeremy, thanks for coming on. It's been great talking to you. And I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. It's, it's great stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 